0: Um, and that's it, okay, Gospel of Mark chapter 11 today, as we are making our way through the Gospel of Mark. I always get a little bit disoriented because Mark's such a short gospel, right? And as, as we're going through it, I find that as we get about here, I'm like, whoa, we're, we're getting to the end, right? Jesus has been getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. And as he has, there's been an intensity growing, and uh, as we'll see today, he is entering Jerusalem uh, with the cross right ahead of him. And so he has told the disciples of his betrayal that's coming, of his arrest, his death and resurrection, and, and they still they get parts of it. They understand that there's an intensity to the things that are happening. but they don't fully understand what it's all pointing to. And we saw that last week in chapter 10, where James and John Though it says all the disciples were amazed and that they were fearful as they followed him, um, James and John decide that they're also going to try and kind of promote themselves, right? And so they're like, hey, by the way, when you rule the world, which is what they meant by when you come into your kingdom, can we be on your left and on your right? You can choose who's where, you know, I don't mind left or right, but these are two options, right? And and that was to say we want the second most powerful place in the kingdom. We want to be right below you. And uh, uh, the other gospels tell us that it was actually their mom that kind of instigated that whole thing. Them asking isn't embarrassing enough that it was their mom that was in on it. just even worse. The other disciples hear about it, and they're mad. So there's, we see this constant struggle, right? This constant, like, who's going to be Jesus' favorite? Who's going to be uh, right there with him? And... Uh, And at the same time, there's this this great contrast, because James and John are a picture of of prayer in a way that's like, here's not how to approach the Lord. (laughs) Here's not how to approach prayer. But then right behind that, you've got this great example of Bartimaeus. Blind old Bartimaeus, this beggar that Jesus actually passed by, first of all. And then Bartimaeus is calling out, son of David, have mercy on me. And, uh, and we talked about how he was such a great example of how prayer is to be approached, right? He understood the big need, the overall need was for mercy. But he also had the specifics of, I want to see, right? And then for us in prayer, it's good for us to have the, the big general, not generic, but big general things, but also have the specific things that we're asking for. Not that God doesn't know them, but that when he answers, we have specific answers to point to. Right, So it's for our benefit. As I said, Jesus enters Jerusalem here in chapter 11. And this is what's called the triumphant entry. Um, it's one of those things, it is not exactly what they expected. Um, In some ways it is, and I think there's this surface level that we read about the triumphant entry with that sometimes people still misunderstand it. Even as we read through it, it's like, oh, this is great. Everybody's realizing who Jesus is, and they're they're excited about Jesus coming in, and they're laying down palm branches, and what a great celebration this is. That's only the surface, and as we'll see, that is not where Jesus was at at all. That there was something far greater, far deeper that was happening. This was a very important day. Um, a huge day, but it was not the celebration that the crowd thought it was. So let's pray and we will get into chapter 11. Lord God, we thank you. Uh, We thank you for this day that we get to gather together in your name, that we have the honor to study your word together and to be in public and and to share the love of Jesus with the people around us. And we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and teach us today as we go through your word. Lord, we don't want to miss a thing. And only you know how to apply your word to our lives and to our hearts. And so we give you full permission to do what you want. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So starting in verse 1. And actually, we're going to get all the way through chapter 11. I realize it's been a while since we've done a whole chapter. It's a short chapter, so it's not that much of an accomplishment. But verse 1. It says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has, has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you why, do you, why are you doing this? say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. And so They went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. Some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosening the colt? And they spoke just as Jesus had commanded, and so they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and and he sat on it. And many spread out their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy palm branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And then those who went before and those who, uh, and, and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David and that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As Jesus went into Jerusalem, And into the temple, so that he looked around at all all things, as the hour was already already late, and went out to Bethany with the twelve. Um. Jesus sends a couple of his guys on this errand just outside of Jerusalem before they get into the city itself. Uh, The other gospels make it clear it's not just a uh, colt we think of a lot of times as a horse; it's a donkey. And uh, the foal of a donkey. So there's a a mother and her colt, and they bring both. Jesus sits upon the colt, which is a cool thing. Just a little side note. It's like this picture of his supremacy over all creation. I mean, if you've ever been around donkeys, they are as stubborn as you've heard. They are terrible. My uncle had donkeys on his farm. They were the worst. And so to actually ride on one that had never been broken, never had anybody sat on it before, Yet, Jesus sits on it, and it's no problem at all. I love it. Um, and as I mentioned, this is in a very important day. This, not just the timing of Jesus entering Jerusalem, but the way he enters. And so, if you're taking notes, I'm actually going to be firing uh, several different verses at you and different parts of Scripture, which I don't like to do a lot, because a lot of times, we, by the time we find that verse, and we look it up, and we've already moved on. And So if you just want to jot them down, Or if you don't get them, let me know afterwards. I'll make sure you do. Because these are important verses for us to know. And it, it puts in context the events that are taking place right here. If we just read over it, it could look just very surface and go, oh, okay, Jesus walks into Jerusalem and everybody's happy about it. And that's great. There's so much more. That, as I said, the timing and how he enters is the fulfillment of some of the most important prophecy from the Old Testament. One of those being Zechariah 9, verse 9. Where we are given the prophecy, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now again... People could read that and go, okay, so somebody that wanted to pretend like they were the Messiah, they just get a donkey's colt and they ride in. And again, it wasn't just this. There was a lot of meaning that even the people there had missed out on. uh, But they did understand that the timing was important. Maybe not to the day. But the day is important. And I mean the exact day. So over 500 years before this, the angel of the Lord spoke to Daniel, and, and in Daniel chapter 9, the angel is giving Daniel all of these very specific things concerning Israel, about Daniel's people. And uh, again, Daniel's not in Jerusalem. Daniel and everyone else is in, in Babylon at this time. The temple has been absolutely destroyed. There, Israel doesn't seem to have any hope at all. So when this angel shows up and starts telling Daniel all of these things about his people, uh it's a it's a huge relief to Daniel. And in Daniel chapter nine, verse twenty-five, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. Now there's some confusing things here, and I don't want to get weighed down in it, but understand that like we think of a week being seven days. The reference here is a period of seven years. So every week is seven years. And so there's seven weeks and then 62 weeks, which gives you an accumulative number of 483 years. right? And what the angel tells him is from the time a decree is going to go forth to rebuild all of Jerusalem, which again, at Daniel's time was hard to believe because it had been leveled. And he says, when that decree goes out, from that day, it'll be exactly 483 years until the Messiah is revealed to Israel. It's pretty specific. Now, on top of that, we know the exact time that that decree went out because it's recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter 2, when the king decreed that and told Nehemiah that the Jerusalem would be allowed to be rebuilt. And so you can do the history, look at the history and find the exact date that decree went out. It's not just recorded in the Bible, but in other archaeological finds. And again, if you go from that date, 483 years, you land at this day that Jesus is riding in. The day the Messiah would be revealed to all of Israel. Some of the other Gospels talk about that when they shouted out Hosanna, the priest told Jesus, don't let them say that. Don't let them call you the son of David. And Jesus says, if they kept silent, the very stones would cry out. That's how important this day was. right? Again, all of this is a fulfillment of prophecy, that the Messiah would be revealed. But there's also something there in Daniel chapter 9 that's important is uh, while this promise of the coming Messiah is is great, it's overshadowed by the angel then saying, but the Messiah shall be cut off and not for himself. So yeah, he's going to be revealed the exact day he's going to be revealed. But there's still this picture that the cross is right behind it, right? He is going to be cut off from life itself and not for himself, but for others, for us. Now, again, I think there's this surface thing that we see on the triumphant entry. And it's probably what the crowd saw, and it's probably what the disciples saw. You know, again, the disciples are still looking for this earthly kingdom to be established, and they're wanting that everybody would realize Jesus is the Christ, and so he gets into power, and they get into power, and won't this be great? This is probably the day they've been looking for, right? People are coming out, and this was literally the red carpet treatment. They're taking off their cloaks, and they're laying it on the ground, and they're cutting down palm branches, and they're laying those on the ground. And so it's a huge sign of respect. And it's also a pretty huge thing that they are shouting out Hosanna, which means save now. And they're acknowledging he is the son of David. It was calling him the Messiah. But again, they're looking for a political Messiah. And it's important we understand that, because we could look at this and go, it seems like they get it. It seems like they're doing what they should do. But it isn't just what they're doing, it's why they're doing it right? It's the motive behind it. Um, while the crowd rejoices, Luke tells us in chapter 19 that Jesus wept. What a huge contrast, right? And again, picture it, this huge group of people. Man, they are, they are excited. This, not only is it the Messiah is coming This is the time that Jerusalem has the greatest population it would have all year. Everybody's there for the Passover. Everybody's there to celebrate. And the word of Jesus has spread like wildfire, and here he is riding into Jerusalem. It's important to see that contrast, that while they celebrate, Luke 19, starting in verse 42, Jesus says this about those in Jerusalem, about Jerusalem itself. If you had known, even you, especially on this day, the things that made for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. Now again, we look at that and we're like, it seems like they're getting it. I mean, aren't they doing what they're supposed to? They're, they're celebrating, they're calling him the Messiah, But again, they're not understanding he's not a political savior. He's not there to bring about reform. He's not there to overthrow Rome. He is there to save us from hell. And because they don't see that, that's what Jesus means when he says it is hidden from their eyes. Yeah, they're all celebrating, but it is for the wrong reasons. Another very subtle thing that Jesus does here is that... uh, In Jewish custom, that when a king went out to proclaim war to his people, when he went to make the announcement, we are going to war, he rode a white horse. But when he went out to proclaim peace, he rode on a donkey. He has showed up while the people are wanting war. Understand, they are ready to go to war against Rome. And he rides in to say, no, I'm here to bring... Interesting enough, when Jesus returns, he returns on what? A white, a white horse. Very different in the return. All right, verse 12. It says, Now the next day, when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing far off a fig tree, having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And When he came to it, He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And the disciples heard it. And so they came to Jerusalem. And then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he said, then he taught, saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, and you have made it a den of thieves. And then the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning they passed by and saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes that those things will be done, he will have whatever he says. And therefore I say to you, Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you have received them, and you will have them. And whenever you are standing praying, if you have anything against one another, forgive him, for your Father in heaven may may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. That was a lot. It's a big section, but it's important because it all fits together. Um, the next day, again, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. It just says that he looks around. But because the hour is late, he went to Bethany. And so the morning, he comes back to the temple. And on the way, there's this weird thing with the fig tree, right? He just walks by this fig tree, no figs. He curses it and then walks on it right. and, and just kind of makes a note of that. We're going to come back to it, but it's important. And keep in mind, it is connected to the temple and the priesthood as we'll see. He goes to the temple. And again, I think this is one of the things that in our culture, in our church culture, we have trouble understanding the importance of the temple. And even as, as we think about what it was like to be Jewish, and well, they had you know, different rabbis and different synagogues, and those were fine places for them to meet and study the scriptures, but they were not the temple. The temple was the only place on earth that had a connection to God. And again, we don't quite get that, right? Because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us if we've given our life to Jesus Christ. We've become that temple, the temple of God. But back then, there was only one place in all the earth where anyone could ever get close to the presence of God. And that was the temple. That's it. And so Jesus shows up. He goes back into the temple, and he sees all that's taking place there. And and it seems like Jesus kind of snaps. And he does, but he does for good reason. It isn't just him losing his temper. It's not him just freaking out. There is so much going on. Again, the, the importance of the temple. And so much of what the, the temple worship revolved around was sacrifice. Right? Well, you could go there and... People would go there and they'd bring their tithes and their offerings and their gifts and there were acts of worship taking place. The greatest was knowing that you could go and make sacrifice for your sin and that it would be covered. Not taken away, it wasn't erased, it was just covered. They understood that a perfect sacrifice would come eventually to erase sin. And so they knew that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and all that stuff was just a covering. So there in the temple... The one place where you can connect to God, the one place where you can make sacrifice for your sin has been turned into a den of thieves. That Jesus goes in and just and I, I just I want to see the picture on the, the the disciples' faces, right? That when they go in, okay, I'm going to the temple, <laughs> and Jesus just like starts overturning tables and driving people out and and not allowing anyone else to come in carrying groceries or wares or anything. He just like sets up shop in his house. And I love it. And it's also important we understand that this is the second time Jesus has done this. He does it at the beginning of his ministry. He does it again at the end. And what was it that, that caused him to snap? Well, they had turned the temple, into a money-making scam. See, if you wanted to go in and make sacrifice, you would bring the best of your flock. You'd bring the best lamb without spot or blemish, the one that had the highest value, right? You couldn't bring one in. Well, that one can't walk. We'll take him and sacrifice him. We won't get much for him at market, right? It had to be the best. And so you would bring the best that you had into the temple, and and it would, it cost you something. It was a great sacrifice, literally, on your own family to make the sacrifice and so then the priest was supposed to inspect it to make sure there wasn't anything wrong with it and if there was they'd go i'm sorry you you can't sacrifice this you need something better well what they had done was there was a problem with everybody's no matter what you brought it wasn't good enough oh sorry this one's flawed but luckily for you we have these pre-approved lambs over here And they're four times as expensive, but you'll actually get to go make the sacrifice. And Without it, you can't. So doves, lambs, anything. You wanted to tithe or give? Well, you couldn't use Gentile money. So you had to exchange your Gentile Roman money for Hebrew money at, again, four times the cost. And where did all that money go? Right into the pocket of the priests. They had set all of this up, on top of that, in the court of the Gentiles. So just outside of the main courtyard area of the temple was this just open area. And it was meant to be the court of the Gentiles. Its purpose was that anyone from any nation could come to the temple. And they could get that far, and they could stand in the courtyard, and they couldn't be a part of the worship. They couldn't be a part of the sacrifice, but they could observe it. They could hear the music. They could see the sacrifice taking place. They could smell the incense being burned, right? It was to give them the opportunity to go, do you want to be part of Israel? It was the gateway for all Gentiles. And what did these guys do? They set up a market there. So now there was no room for the Gentiles. The Gentiles weren't welcome there anymore because they had to have room for their changing money tables and the pre-approved lambs and all that other stuff. So it was closed to the world. And it was pretty much closed off from those in Israel that didn't have enough money. So the, the middle class and the lower class probably couldn't make sacrifices. because They couldn't afford how expensive everything was. Again, the priests that should have been protecting everyone from this were the ones behind it all. And so Jesus goes in and he snaps. His house... It was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. It has become a den of thieves. And those thieves are the priests themselves. Now, again, this is intense. And, and uh, I think we get the wrong idea on a couple of different things. First of all, uh, him not allowing people in or out. There was an intensity about Jesus, right? Again, if we picture Jesus meek and mild all the time, we're missing Jesus here. This was not Jesus meek and mild, right? When he overturned those tables, it's not like we think of like the little plastic tables that fold out, and we're like, well, they made a mess. That wasn't very nice. These were stone marble slabs, very heavy. Most people could not have overturned them, and Jesus did. Intimidating. I mean, there's just no way around it. And then they had to think about, well, now we've got to put those things back up. We've got to get some people, right? And he taught them, In other words, he didn't just say this. This this was a teaching. He wanted them to get it. He wanted everybody to hear this that could hear it. My house, and I love that he says, you know, he makes that quote, not just the house of the Lord, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. Now, again, the religious leaders have absolutely no defense. There's anything they can say or do and go, well, Jesus, you know what's actually, uh, it's good for the economy to do this. (laughs) There's nothing. They got nothing. So Instead of repenting, instead of admitting their guilt, they plot to destroy him because they're guilty. There's nothing else they have. And once again, Jesus leaves the city, he goes out, and they pass by this same fig tree. Again, this is an interesting thing. There's only two destructive miracles Jesus does, and this is one of them. The other is the the pigs from Legion, right? The pigs went down, destroyed themselves in the water. This is the other one, where Jesus speaks, and destruction is the result of it. And uh, he goes to this fig tree that morning, sees there's, there's leaves on it, but there's no fruit. And, and Mark even makes a note of saying, well, it wasn't really time for, for figs yet. It wasn't that part of the season. However, there's a weird thing, if I understand right, that, that the fig trees do in the Middle East, that if they le- begin to have a lot of leaves early on, they'll also have a couple figs. They're just called early season figs. And so Jesus wasn't out of line in any way, but this is a whole lot deeper than this fig tree. This is what's called an action parable. In other words, what Jesus did has a much greater meaning. And in this case, he doesn't even explain what it is to the disciples. So we're going to take it apart, we're going to look at it, see things that line up. But understand, too, we want to do that carefully. We don't want to assign a bunch of meaning to things that aren't there. Um, so, as we look at this, this is a lot more than Jesus just showed up. There was no fruit. He was hangry, so he curses this tree, and moves on. And the disciples are like, "Dang, he was really upset about that." What has Jesus been doing? Consider the context. The day before, he walked into the temple, and he inspected it. He just looked around, and he went out. And now he has come back to the temple. And, and found with absolute certainty there is no fruit there. Israel's pictured several different ways in the Old Testament, but a couple of the ones that are consistent is a vineyard and a fig tree. And the fig tree was important because anytime the fig tree was used as an example, it's specifically about their relationship to God. It's about the, the spiritual walk of Israel, right? And so... Uh, Actually, there was even a saying at the time that if, if you were having your morning devotions, you were praying, you were reading the scriptures, you would refer to it, if someone said, hey, what did you do this morning? And you'd say, I was under the fig tree, right? The idea that you're under God's covering as part of his people is how that picture worked. And so the fig tree is the spiritual life of Israel, and Jesus has seen That man, there is just no fruit going on now. A lot of people will look at this and go, "Okay, well, this is a judgment on Israel." Jesus does does speak about judgment coming, right? Even in that uh, scripture from Luke, that because they didn't understand why he was there, that the judgment was coming. The problem I have when people make this about the entire nation of Israel is that Jesus is very specific, and he's says this phrase with an absolute finality. Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Not just as a seasons that lack fruit, not just occasionally there won't be much fruit. Ever again. It's final. Jesus is not done with Israel. And again, I've heard people talk about this, and they're like, oh, you know... Jesus, you know, this was all about Israel, and he was done with them, and they didn't recognize him. Now the church is the new Israel, which is a very, very dangerous teaching. We've talked about that before, the replacement theology. But there's a lot of degrees that people kind of end up kind of waiting in, not understanding how dangerous it is. Again, I don't believe this is about Israel as a nation. I believe this is about the temple and the priesthood. The place where all Israel went to be under the fig tree was the temple. Place where they went to hear the word of God taught and fellowship with the Lord. That had not borne any fruit for a very long time, and it would never bear fruit again. Jesus, again, speaks with an absolute finality. Nation of Israel, again, keep in mind the early church was all jewish (laughs) there was good fruit in the early church and just like there was good fruit in the beginning there'll be fruit again at the end god's going to use israel powerfully in the last seven years of this age during the tribulation israel is going to be just saving people right and left after they come to understand who the messiah is so fruit will be born in israel again god has not departed or abandoned his people as Romans chapter 11 tells us. But the temple itself, the religious leaders at that time, and the priesthood itself will never bear fruit again. Even when the temple is rebuilt, and it will be rebuilt, it will just be a pretty building. It will not have the presence of God. The sacrifices that are made there will be meaningless. Because the greatest sacrifice of Jesus Christ has already been made. You cannot add to it. And so, again, never again will the temple or the priesthood bear any type of fruit at all. Now, it's also a great picture. Because from the outside, the temple looked healthy and beautiful. Like the tree filled with leaves. But the truth is, it just didn't have any fruit. It was all appearances. It all was looking like it was great on the outside. Now, as Jesus has done these things, again, the disciples see the fig trees, and I just feel bad for the disciples. Of course, we wouldn't have gotten it either if we were there, but they see this tree, and they're like, wow, that's cool. That's kind of their whole response. That's a tree you cursed, and look, it's dead. And Jesus kind of goes, "Uh uh-huh. I mean, there's not a whole, it's not this like deep conversation. Jesus doesn't explain this whole thing about what it represents to them at all. In fact, he kind of just goes, you guys should have more faith. And they're like, okay, right? But I think there is even a deeper meaning in that. Because if we look at it going, okay, well, it's the difference between bearing fruit in our lives and not bearing fruit in our lives. How do we not become that fig tree that looks great on the outside, but never does anything of value? Jesus gives us two answers. And the first is to have faith in him. To put our faith in him and just know that he's the one that uh, is able to not only save, but to cause us to grow. And we talked about this just, just, just a few weeks ago. That faith is not something we build up. It's not an emotion that we invoke. It's not something that we, somehow, if we have enough faith, we'll overcome God's reluctance. It's all about who are we placing our faith in? It's so much simpler than we make it. The other part that Jesus says is that we are to forgive one another. And again, we go, well, how are those connected? Have faith in Jesus and forgive one another because having faith is how we have that relationship. It's where that relationship with Jesus grows. How we forgive is the relationship with one another. And unforgiveness hinders our worship. Unforgiveness hinders our growth and our walk. And so if we are there and we're in worship and we're praying and we're whatever we're doing, we're reading our Bible, and we remember somebody has something against us. Or I've offended someone else. Man, we need to take care of it because it's gonna hinder us and it's gonna keep us from bearing good fruit. Verse 27. As we finish up. It says. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him and said to him, By what authority do you do, do, you do these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you a question, and then you answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they answered. Reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say it was from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe in him? But if we say from men, and they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. And they answered and said to him, said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, this is an interesting exchange, and it's, it's kind of, at the, of course, the tail end of all this in this chapter. But they're upset because of what Jesus has done. He made them look bad. He overturned the tables. He really called them out on all the, the treachery that was taking place and how they were taking advantage of God's people. Um, and, and they say, well, well, tell us whose authority you're doing this by. And it's a trap because if he tells them from my heavenly father, I'm the Messiah, then they can convict him of blasphemy right? Even though it's true, they don't care. And so Jesus does something. It's this cool exchange. There's actually other accounts of him doing some similar things where he's like, okay, let's make an equitable change or exchange. You tell me something that's honest, and I'll tell you something that's honest. That's, That's really what it's coming down to. But if you don't answer me honestly, I don't have to answer you at all. And they're like, okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so the question is simple. What do, you, what do you guys think about John? Was John from God or was he just some crazy dude out in the desert, right? And they're like, Ooh. see, they know the answer, right? If they knew, if they just said what they knew, they would say, we know he was from the Lord, but we were too arrogant to repent. That's, the re- that's really the honest answer. But they're like, oh, we don't know. And Jesus says, then I don't need to answer you either. Right, you're not honest with me. I'm not going to be honest with you. Right, and that's the exchange that's happening here. Um, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And these guys are just all show and no fruit. They're the tree with leaves but no fruit. Right, and how do we keep from doing that? How do we not fall into this same trap? And. The good news is is that we have become the new temple. And as great as that is, to go, wow, we are the ones that now have the Holy Spirit within us. We've become the temple of God. If we're really honest, this temple needs a lot of cleansing to take place. There's there's tables that need to be overturned. There's things that have been put in the wrong priority and that have been given too much or they've taken up areas that weren't supposed to be there at all. And we need the Lord to come in and go, I'm taking that out. And it hurts, and it's uncomfortable, and it's embarrassing, but it's what we need. And instead of being the Pharisees going, well, uh, I don't know, and I don't want to admit I was wrong, just going, yeah, you're right, I'm wrong. Flip those tables, man. Do whatever you need to do. Break down those doors. Show me where I'm out of line. Because the last thing we want to be is something beautiful on the outside and worthless inside. Right? I'd much rather have a life that isn't that impressive on the outside, but the Lord's been doing a good work in me, right? And I'm confident that the, the work, though it's painful, to know that he's doing it. But that in itself is encouraging to go, Lord, thank you that you haven't given up on me. You haven't just left me on my own, but you're continuing to refine me, continuing to grow me, and conform me into your image. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, again, we're so grateful that you just... Don't give up. That you just keep coming after us. You keep having good plans for us.